0: Hello readers, coming up it's my chat with Michaeline Duclef about Hunt Gather Parent. First, wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. They don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this show, please do follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BooksOnPod. Pod.
1: This is Dan Lieberman. I'm author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. And I've totally enjoyed this great conversation.
0: Hello, readers. Michaeline Duclef is a Peabody Award-winning correspondent for NPR's Science Desk and author of the new book, Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. Michaeline, thank you so much for the time today. How you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well, thank you. So this book is all about how ancient cultures can teach us, modern parents, how to raise happier and helpful little humans. So in your opinion, what has Western culture really gotten wrong about parenting over the last several decades?
1: Ooh, there's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> I think for like one major thing is, is we let kids off the hook when it comes to contributing and helping out around the house. We give kids all these toys, activities, all this stuff. And basically they do it without really having to do anything in return. And in many ways, they're kind of unemployed in our house, in our homes. And what I kind of talk about at Hunt Gather Parent is, Kids evolved over like 200,000 years, human children, to want to help out their family, to want to be helpful, to want to do chores and be part of a team. And when we let them off the hook, we're kind of denying them this instinct. And I think it creates a lot of conflict. And they also don't want to help as they grow up because we haven't been letting them help all along.
0: Doctors and parenting experts have been offering up advice on raising offspring for a long, long time. And it often isn't based on any sort of hardened scientific research. For instance, what is the origin of the concept of sleep training?
1: Yeah, this one like blew my mind. So probably the first person to really write about this was a surgeon turned sports writer who, (laughs) uh, yeah, I don't even think he had kids, um, but he (laughs) actually went by the name Stonehenge. And he also, besides writing about baby sleep, also wrote about guns and hunting. And he even blew off one of his hands in a gun accident. So (laughs) isn't it incredible? Like, I think it was in the 1800s, right, that he was writing. Yeah, so around 1700s, 1800s, a lot of these parenting experts came about and started writing advice and it started off being for fondling hospitals and orphanages so that nurses and doctors there had some way of taking care of you know dozens even a hundred kids at once but these little pamphlets turned into what we now think of as parenting books and it's incredible that a lot of the advice has just been recycled over time, shifted a little bit for, for the day. But even though we think we are parenting like based on science, a lot of it is not.
0: Well, and you point out over the last 150 years, Western parents have really picked up three common practices that are now cornerstones <laughs> of our relationships with kids. Number one is the thingamajig apocalypse, which speaks <laughs> to one of my biggest pet peeves as the parent of a six and a four year old. And that is the sheer amount of cheap, Brightly colored plastic crap that my kids constantly receive as gifts or treats. But here's the problem, Michaeline declining these marketing ploys disguised as toys is rude. So we have rooms worth of this stuff. Who do we have to blame for this common theme in many of our households?
1: So this came about at the end of the 1800s, so right towards the end of the Industrial Revolution, when all of a sudden manufacturers could create these toys, first wooden and then plastic, but at this like incredible pace and they could make them really colorful. So they were very desirable for kids. And at the same time, some parents, some, you know, middle-class, upper-class parents started having more money to, to spend on kids. But then at the same time, there was a shift in what parents and experts thought was good for kids. So before every kid in the U.S., no matter how much money their parents made or who they were, parents allowed kids to just make their toys. You know, they would maybe give them some cloth, an old piece of equipment that they used. But kids, you know, would make kites out of cloth, make doll clothes. Boys would make boats out of wood. You know, it it, it was just basically, kids would come up with their own toys. And this is how it has been for all of human existence. But sometime in the late 1800s, Experts decided that that wasn't good enough and that kids needed these manufactured toys. And just as we got into plastics and everything became so much cheaper to manufacture, it has just exploded to, I think, a very unhealthy level, not just for the kids, but for the parents, because there's all this evidence that clutter and mess is hard and stressful on your mind. And for me, I'm the one that ends up cleaning it up every night, (laughs) which is just, you know, not enjoyable. So it's this weird combination of like industrialization shift in psychology. so around this time too experts started thinking that kids needed to play all the time and that doing chores and helping around the house wasn't the right way to to raise a child and then at the same time you know expendable income was coming about. Um, and so these things kind of collided together to create this, yeah, like you say, it's, you know, it's rude to turn it down. But, you know, I try to keep them, keep the stuff to a minimum in our house. I try. It's really hard.
0: I was about to say, that's a losing battle, unfortunately. (laughs) We can even try the one toy in, one toy out thing. It's just very difficult to keep up with that pace. And when you really pay attention to it, the kids end up playing with such a small amount of what it is that they receive, too.
1: Yeah, you don't need very much at all. Like, really, we've, you know, you just need a paper and pencils, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that kids can practice, you know, writing and maybe in some books. I mean, that's really what my daughter Rosie plays with, right? Coloring and and drawing. Exactly. Exactly. And then otherwise she makes toys. One of the anthropologists I talked to, David Lancy, and he talks about, it's like, kids just need like a bunch of pillows. (laughs) You know, like like they don't, you know, they, they are really designed to create their own Toys. It's the old um,
0: It's the old Christmas morning joke where they pull a toy out of a big box and they end up playing with the big box for the rest of the day.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think that speaks to like what kids value as important. So like kids know when things are real and useful versus like something that's not real and not useful. They have a genuine instinct to gravitate towards things that are real and useful. And that's why they want to grab the pots and pans and, you know, they want to learn how to, you know, use fire or sharp tools because they know these things are powerful.
0: So you chose to extract lessons from three different hunter-gatherer groups, a Maya village down in Mexico, an Inuit community in Arctic Canada, and the Hadzabe tribe in Tanzania, Africa. Whether people realize it or not, according to the internet, there are as many as 10 million people living the hunter-gatherer life on this planet. So why did you focus on these three cultures in particular?
1: Yeah, so the Maya are actually not hunter-gatherers. They are agriculturists, so they're farmers. But they share a lot of values with hunter-gatherer communities. So I focused on them because this is actually where this, this book began. I'm a global health correspondent at NPR. And in 2018, we did a series on parenting around the world. And I was actually doing a story on attention and how there's been some studies on how Maya children are better at paying attention in some situations than American kids. Um, and so I went down to, to this little village and I just quickly realized there was a much bigger even more important story there than about attention. And it really was about the way that moms were interacting with their children. So I met a couple of moms, including one Maria, who just completely shifted how I thought parenting could work. She was very calm and confident. There was no yelling or screaming or even nagging or bickering that was going on. And yet the kids were incredible. They were respectful and kind and generous to each other and their siblings and super, super helpful. And I kind of left there being like, wow, was this real? Because the relationship was so conflict-free and it just seemed so much more cooperative. And then I actually went up to the Arctic for another story for NPR. And I saw a very similar parenting approach. And I started to do some research about it. And I started to realize, oh, this is not the exception around the world. This is actually really common around the world, this way of interacting with children. And I started to realize that it's actually the most common in hunter-gatherer or forger communities. And so what you see in many, many of these communities is this relationship between parents and children that is more, much more cooperative. And so that the parent is working together with the child to help the child grow, but also teaching the child to be a good family member. So when a parent asks the kid to go and help with the siblings or help do the dishes, the kid gets up and does it <laughs> instead of like rolling his eyes at you. And so that's really what this book is about is trying to learn how to go from a way of parenting that generates a lot of conflict and stress to a way of interacting with children that's a peaceful coexistence.
0: It really is a marvel to read that Maya children do chores without being asked, threatened, or bribed. And the Maya teach their kids how, when, and why to do chores for the family and themselves via a three-step process. And the first step is to always allow the child to help in some way. Does it matter if he or she is getting it right?
1: No, and this is so, so key. And this is something that shifted in Western culture, like in the last hundred years. So a lot of the moms told me, you know, if a child comes over and wants to help, you let them help, even if they're not competent yet. You let them in some way. It doesn't mean you just let them go wild and, you know, make a giant mess. You try to guide them or you give them a subtask to do. So if you're like cooking, you know, you say, hold the plate while I scoop the pancakes off, or you tell them to watch. But the last thing you wanna do is shoo them off because that's just teaching the child that helping and doing chores is not, is not their job. And so over time, psychologists have showed that if you keep shooing a kid off and telling them to go play, by the time they're starting to be seven or eight, they'll stop wanting to help. So that one is so key. It's like you don't have to let the child just do whatever, but just at least try to involve the child when they show interest.
0: You visited a Mayan mom who was responsible for getting her four kids ready for school in the morning. You compared how she did it to a baseball manager instructing his team from the dugout. How so?
1: Yeah, so her name is Juanita, and she, yeah, she has four kids, I think six to 16, and I watched, I was there, she welcomed me into her home at like six o'clock in the morning or something on the school day, which was incredible, because I don't know if I would do that, and I have one kid, Um, (laughs) but it was, (laughs) um, it was amazing, actually, I recorded it for the radio, and just how calm it was, number one, there was no yelling the entire time, but I compared her to a baseball manager, because she hardly had to say anything, And a lot of times she was communicating with the kids and telling them what to do with nonverbal gestures. So like facial expressions or signals. And she just also had much more patience than I have with my little ones. So the 11-year-old Ernesto, little boy, you know, he couldn't find his shoes. And she told him, go find your shoes. And then she waited, Trey, I swear, like, five to 10 minutes before she asked again, you know? So I'm like, go find your shoes, Rosie. And then literally like 30 seconds, like go find your (laughs) shoes, you know? And so she asked him, I think three times and she never escalated it. She never got frustrated with him. So it was just this very calm, confident, composure she had that really made me think of a baseball manager, you know, who's kind of there in the dugout, just kind of giving signals with his ears or his nose about, you know, what to do. And she's trained the the children to know what to do and to help each other. And that was the other thing that really stuck out was the 16 year old helped the six year old get ready, get dressed, brushed her hair. And Juanita told me like, she's already 16. She knows how to do it all. and, And this is why it's gone so smoothly. It went incredibly smoothly. It was incredible. At some point you could hear the birds singing outside. It was so quiet.
0: Wow. And the Maya also discouraged these planned child centered activities with more of an emphasis on letting their kids see what real life is. Why is this such a good thing for them?
1: Yeah, so this is also something really new that we do, these child centered activities. So activities that you as a parent would never do if you don't have kids. So like for me personally, I would never go to a kitty museum or a four year old birthday party. <laughs> if I didn't have kids and after I wrote this book I would never go again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these activities don't exist. And it's not because they couldn't, it's because they don't see them as valuable for children. What they see as more valuable is the adults doing regular adult activities so work hobbies leisure social activities and letting the children come along as long as they're appropriately behaved to an extent and teaching them what that means to be behaved and what this does is it teaches the children to be part of a team right so that that what i was talking about with Juanita where the kids were all working together in the morning That comes from doing activities together after school, on the weekends, kids learn that, you know, what the parents are doing, I do. I'm a member of this team. And I think that that's one of the key things we've kind of lost is we've stopped training kids to be a team member, to be a good family member. We kind of train them to be these little individuals that are achieving their own accomplishments and going after their own goals. And I think that's good. But I think that there's also something to be said to also teaching the child to, you know, work together and cooperate with their family.
0: Well it's interesting because planned activities can be a good thing because shared experiences are such a valuable part of human interaction. But I think about planning a vacation and mm. kowtowing to the kids to end up going to Disney World versus spending that money to go someplace that isn't an absolute Sensory cluster F, where everybody can still have a good time, parents and kids both, and you're actually doing something that may be a little bit more memorable in the long term, too.
1: Yeah. And also teaching probably the child something that's super valuable in their life, and that's how to behave in an adult world. Mm -hmm. So, a bunch of the anthropologists and psychologists I talked to said kids in the last 20, 30 years they leave high school or even college not really knowing how to exist in the adult world because they've been in this child-centered world, Disneyland, you know, metaphorically. And it's a skill. It takes time, right? You can't just plop a 10-year-old in an office and they know how to, you (laughs) you know, they know what to do. And again, children know what's real. I think at some level they do enjoy Disney World and these child-centered activities, but I think they also do genuinely enjoy learning how to be more mature and doing what the parents do. There is a richness to it that is missing from kitty birthday parties.
0: So considering the Maya have their children doing all of these things on their own, are they giving them constant praise? Are they showering them mm-hmm. with praise like we love to in America when our kids do one little thing?
1: Oh my gosh, Trey, this might be the one of the craziest things that we do, to be honest. Like if you go really anywhere in the world you will not see this constant stream of praise that we give kids for every little thing. I actually recorded myself with my daughter and it was incredible. You know, and it's not just simple praise, it's very effusive, but this is super new. So I'm in my mid 40s and I didn't get this (laughs) growing up. (laughs) And it's really interesting because there's not really any scientific data supporting this way of parenting. In fact, there's just as many cons to it, the data suggests, as pros. And so, no, there is very little praise around the world given to children, maybe a blink of an eye, a smile, a nod. But one of the major things that they do is they accept the child's contribution. So this kind of goes back to this idea of like shooing the child off when they're helping. Well, they don't not only will many parents around the world will let the child help and contribute to dinner, to breakfast, to the yard work to whatever chore or activity a parent is doing to the to their work, but then when the child wants to help and actually does something, they actually try to accept it at some level. So, for instance, Maria, the woman you mentioned before, was making tortillas, and the eight-year-old was helping her. And you know, the tortillas weren't quite perfect, you know, but she kind of fixed them and then she used them. And she never tried to force the child to make the perfect tortilla. She let the child in the four-year-old too, like make some version of their tortilla and then she accepted it at some level. She might've fixed it. And from what I've read and for, from the psychological research, this is so much more motivating for a child than, oh, good job. And then you don't use the tortilla, right? <laughs> so, so the child knows, like if you're taking the tortilla and you're using it and, you're, and then you eat the tortilla they made, that is such a much bigger motivation to help out again than some over praising and you don't actually use the tortilla or you grab the child's hand and try to show them how to do it this is another big difference is we tend to really micromanage our child's experiences when they're when they're helping us so if a child comes over to help we start lecturing them about how it's proper i will grab the utensils from rosie's hand and to show her But around the world, and especially in many hunter-gatherer cultures, the parents will kind of step back a little bit and let the child really take charge of what they're doing and try to figure it out themselves. And there's data that show that when this is done, a child takes much more interest in the task and will stick to the task much longer than if you come in, swoop in and and try to really boss them around and tell them them what to do.
0: Fascinating stuff there. All right, so I have to admit that the section on Inuit emotional intelligence resonates with me the most because I can be a little bit short-tempered with my two little ones at home. (laughs) Inuit parents and kids rarely melt down emotionally and one of the keys seems to be executive function. What is executive function and why do Inuit kids exhibit such a strong sense of this, especially for their respective ages?
1: Yeah, so executive function is this umbrella term for cognitive skills, cognitive ability to think before you react. So a kid hits you. So my little girl, Rosie, when she was three, when I first started working on this book, she's five now, she would have these tantrums and she would slap me across the face. And, you know, I would react like many parents, I think, you know, and get very angry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if I had better executive function, you know, I would stop and like think first before reacting. And so it's, it allows you to consider other options or multiple options. So it's also like how flexible you are. So if somebody comes and says, we're not going to do this, you know, you're like, all right, well, let's figure out something else. It's the ability to change direction and it's self-control clearly if you're pausing and thinking before you react it requires some self-control and psychologists and neuroscientists really think that a big part of children developing executive function is by watching their parents so they learn they learn that if something is frustrating somebody does something that causes you to be angry your kids watch you to figure out how they're supposed to react. And so the Inuit parents that I met, we stayed with this incredible family. The grandmother was Sally, the great-grandmother's Maria, and Sally helped me enormously learn to control my anger and control my emotions when Rosie, my little girl, would get upset. So we spent two weeks with them, And there were lots of kids around from like 18 months to 16-year-olds. There were a lot of times there was a toddler and a three-year-old and a six-year-old with us. And then Rosie, my little three-year-old. And I never once saw a parent yell at a child that entire time. And yet they weren't allowing the children to walk all over them. They were using all these other tools that I describe in Hunt, Gather, Parent to like sculpt children's behavior change children's behavior and calm them down so a little toddler had a tantrum and sally picked him up and he scratched her face and it was bleeding and i could tell she was in pain but she didn't yell she didn't get angry at him it was incredible she kind of like peeled off his fingers from her face and said something like in a very calm voice that's not what we do and then she like picked him up and kind of tossed him over and like flew him around like an airplane <laughs> and, like, and kind of patted him on the butt very gently. And, and then it was kind of done. It was incredible. But what I saw is that my little girl who's got this like fiery tantrumy belly in her around this calmness, she really calmed down. The tantrums would just stop very quickly when she saw that Sally and another mom Elizabeth, you know, we're going to come over to her very calmly. So basically anytime that the kids got really emotional and had this huge emotional outburst, the parents would bring the energy so down, like as low as you could go, gently walk over to the child and barely say a word, like maybe touch them on the arm or point to like something in nature, like the sunset. And it was incredible, like Rosie would just, she would just calm down.
0: It's easy to be calm those first couple of times, Michaeline. but (laughs) after you're having to repeat yourself time and time again, and maybe that's part of the solution here, but over time it becomes more difficult to remain calm. So are there in what ways to better control the anger than I or plenty of other parents here in America do?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think a big part of it is not suppressing or controlling the anger in the moment so there's like psychological and neuroscientific research that shows that actually controlling your anger once you're already angry is really difficult mm. and um you, you know we try we expect kids to do it but a lot of adults can't do it either right um and so what i've i've learned from the inuit moms and from research on many cultures around the world is this idea that they have a different way of looking at children's behavior so that they generate less anger in the first place. So I asked one of the moms in the Arctic, is not she pushing my button or she's trying to manipulate me? And the mom actually laughed at me (laughs) and she was like, she's three, she's not pushing your buttons. And so instead of seeing children's behavior as kind of mean, right? We kind of view it as like, oh, they're trying to hurt us. They're trying to manipulate us which I think sets up this conflict between parents and children, but also generates anger in the parent. Like, I don't want you to manipulate me. I don't want you to push my buttons. Instead, many parents around the world, especially in forager hunter gatherer communities, expect children to misbehave. So they see children as these irrational, illogical beings that just haven't developed executive functions, haven't developed understanding or a logical mind yet. So there's no reason to get upset because the child is just irrational and illogical and arguing with them would make no sense. So it's not, they see this behavior and even a slap in the face as just something a child is doing. It's not personal at all. And it's their job as a parent to then show the child how you're supposed to behave. And so is that yelling back, getting upset and screaming? No, because that's like a child, (laughs) (laughs) right? They see that as just like the parent being like a child. No, you show the child in that moment that you're calm. You come to frustrations and difficulties in life with calmness and gentleness. And then over time, number one, the child will calm down much more quickly because children's emotions mirror their parents. And this is what... I think in the long run has helped me, like you say, doing it over and over again is that you start to see that it works, that the parent staying calm, and being the logical, rational one, works, because the child starts to calm themselves down quickly. Actually, it took me and Rosie like a week or two for her to really like be convinced that I was going to be calm. She was very suspicious of it at first. Like, yeah. are you? What are you doing? But when she <laughs> got it, and then here's the amazing thing is because the child is learning to calm themselves down, the tantrums start to go away, like really quickly. So Rosie was having like one every day, one or two a day even. It went to like one a month because I was giving her a chance to find that calm reaction in herself because I was calm. Does that make sense at all?
0: (laughs) No, it really does. And it gave me a lot to think about because you're right. Kids aren't these nefarious creatures who are looking to push buttons or pick fights with you. But I do think that they test boundaries from time to time. Like I'm thinking of my six-year-old right now, and she's just on a lying spree. She's just being dishonest with us like crazy. and. In a sense, I feel like she is testing boundaries to see what she can get away with. So our challenge as parents is, like what you just said, not to react in an emotional manner because then she realizes that that's a way that she can get an emotional rise out of us. But make sure to try and teach her properly that she is doing something that is unacceptable in this family. So for the Inuit way, even if they are able to keep their cool, I'm assuming there are moments where they do have to dole out some sort of punishment. So what does that look like for them?
1: So, you know, I think, and this is not just from the Inuit culture, this research comes from like many groups. I think that one of the things that many cultures will do is that if there's a behavior that is unwanted, so all cultures are transmitting values and right, and proper behavior, appropriate behavior. Parents see their job as to teach the children values and appropriate behavior and this takes time. And that's what your job is here, right? (laughs) Is to teach your daughter that lying is not acceptable behavior. And I think that in many cultures, there will be much less emphasis on inappropriate behavior. So in my experience with Rosie, who's five now, if I give a lot of attention to a misbehavior, it will get worse. But if I ignore it, and at the same time, make it clear to her that it's unacceptable, then it tends to go away. So one of the cross-cultural researchers I talked to says that American parents will give a lot of attention to a business behavior and it will create conflict and kind of reinforce the behavior versus like really just completely ignoring it or just tossing off. Lying is like a child. Lying is like a baby or lying will get you in trouble. If you're dishonest, what are the repercussions of it? So a big thing that parents will do is tell the consequences of a misbehavior. Instead of just pounding the idea into the child with a lot of emphasis on it, you're making it clear to the child that it's inappropriate by telling them the consequences, by telling them it's immature, it's like a baby, and then just completely ignoring it. And I know that sounds... Like it wouldn't work. <laughs> oh. But I, in my experience with this very willful child that I have, um, mm-hmm. it works amazingly well because I think that maybe she's pushing boundaries, but maybe she's also just really interested in why you're so interested in it. <laughs> you know, like I think sometimes Rosie is trying to like figure out like, well, why is mama so cares so much about this? To a child to a young child, attention is a huge a huge motivating factor. And even if the attention is negative, the parent is focusing on it so much then I think it reinforces the behavior.
0: What does it mean when Inuit parents parent with awe?
1: Oh, this was is one of my favorites. To this day, we use it all the time. This is an incredibly sophisticated psychological tool that a neuroscientist actually told me about before I traveled up there. And then I realized, oh my gosh, these parents, these moms and dads are using this tool. And so when whenever the little 18-month-old toddler would start to have a tantrum, just start a little bit, the great-grandmother, Maria, would pick him up and take him over to the window and say something to him and point outside. And I wasn't sure what she was saying. And it was very quiet. I couldn't hear it. But then later on, our interpreter, Elizabeth, who was interpreting Inututuk into English for us, Rosie started to have a tantrum in the grocery store. Actually, the first time I was outside, it was late. And the sun was still up at like 10 because it's the summer in the Arctic. And we were walking back to the house and Rosie started to have a tantrum. And I went over there to her with my usual like, what's wrong, stop it, I told you not to. <laughs> you know, you're driving me crazy basically. <laughs> like, why are you doing this right now? And Elizabeth walked over to her and knelt down. And in the gentlest, most tender voice, pointed to the sunset, which was incredible. It was like purple and pink. And she said, Rosie, do you see the sunset, the beautiful sunset? Do you see the pink and the purple colors? And she was even calmer than I'm being. I'm way too energetic. But Rosie immediately stopped crying and being upset. And she looked over and she was like, yeah, it is beautiful. I mean, it was spectacular, right? And she's right. The sunset was amazing. And what she was doing was she was teaching Rosie that when you feel some negative feeling in your body or in your mind, try to look around you and find something that's beautiful, that is something to be grateful for, something to have awe. And that's the feeling of awe. Like, wow, look at this flower growing in the crack of the sidewalk. You know, look at the colors of a bird's wings. And if you do this often enough, even when you're not upset, so with your kids, like if you're just out walking or maybe you're stressed about something and you're in the car, just try to cultivate awe in yourself. There's so much stuff around us that's amazing, right? And even technology can be amazing. And you know, point it out to your children, like, look at this amazing moon outside. Rosie and I will look at the moon almost every night, like the moon is so beautiful. And what this does is if you do it enough, when you're not angry and you're not upset, then when you are upset or you feel frustrated, you have a better chance of bringing this feeling in and reacting to things with gratitude instead of anger and frustration. A lot of neuroscientists think that emotions are kind of like muscles. So if you flex your anger muscle and your frustration muscle and your complaining muscle, which I'm trying not to flex so much of right now, then you will go back to those muscles and you'll use them a lot. But if you flex your awe muscles and your gratitude muscles and your calm muscles, (laughs) which I'm trying to flex, (laughs) then you will use those. And then you will teach your children those.
0: So the Inuit have sets of tools to deal with three different types of problems. We've already talked a little bit about how they try to deal with tantrums. Yeah. There's also a set of tools for everyday misbehavior. And at the foundation of this, and really much of the advice throughout the book, is to trigger thought in that little one. And part of this has to do with questions. Yeah. Why are questions so important for kids and trying to get them to rein in bad behaviors and what are some of the most productive questions?
1: Yeah so what I realized when we were up there is Elizabeth the interpreter never told Rosie like do or don't and so in many hunter-gatherer communities like telling somebody what to do is really taboo it's really thought of as rude and even children you just don't tell people you think too highly of people to boss them around but it doesn't mean you don't try to get them to do the right thing, especially children. So you still need to teach them the appropriate behavior. And so instead of telling them directly, like you said, you get them to figure out the proper behavior themselves with either a question or like telling them the consequences. So I noticed this, that Rosie one time was we were at the playground in the Arctic and um, she was like throwing rocks, she was like juggling rocks. And instead of saying, don't throw those rocks, Rosie, this little girl, who I think she was about nine, comes over and says, "You're gonna hurt somebody with those rocks." And so she just told her the consequences of her actions. One time, a young girl—I think she was eight or six or seven, maybe—she was climbing on the shed, and she was, you know, walking, and it was too high. It was clearly too high. And so somebody said, "Donna, you're gonna fall off." And so then you could see Donna's like brain, like kind of click into action, and she thinks, like, "Oh, I need to get down." And what's remarkable is nine times out of 10, the kid figures it out. The kid kind of knows what's the right behavior, but they're just not putting the dots together. And so what this does is, number one, it creates a lot less conflict, right? Because you're not just bossing the child around. You're getting them to figure out for themselves the right action. But then it also teaches them that, oh climbing up here I could hurt myself or oh these rocks could hurt somebody and so they also use questions to get children to think in a similar way a lot of them have to do with the parents one time the kids came over and gave Sally a bunch of trash and she said what am I your trash can <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was so it just I will remember it forever and so like sometimes Rosie like climbs on me or like pulls my arms and so I say like what am I your jungle gym you know <laughs> like, right and so I think it I see in the book, it's more about like encouraging behavior, Mm -hmm. right? But it's also respecting the child's autonomy and respecting the child's ability to figure things out for themselves. And it works also, Trey, for like abstract ideas. Like sometimes Rosie will be kind of bossy and rude. And I will just say like, who's being disrespectful? Are you being disrespectful? Like, so instead of like directly like accusing her, I kind of imply that she's being disrespectful. (laughs) You could try that with your daughter.
0: I'll be honest. I've started to apply the helping and the question asking thing probably more than anything else over the last week. And it has been mind blowing to see just how quickly it catches on and changes behaviors.
1: Yeah, and without a lot of conflict right is that kind of
0: no it gets them to think about what it is that they're in the middle of doing or about to do and change their course of action without you having to threaten punishment or start the three count or whatever other strategy (laughs) parents normally use
1: yeah i think it also it thinks more of the child as than as like a robot right like me just telling rosie like don't do this don't throw the rocks is like assuming she can't think Yeah, I think it is genius. When I first started noticing it there, especially for somebody like Rosie, who's very strong-willed, right? I was like, this is really profound.
0: So you detail two different tools with long-term impacts on changing behaviors amongst the Inuits. One is the uniquely human trait of storytelling. How so?
1: Oh my gosh, this one has changed our life. So I think there's a lot of evidence that what one of the reasons why humans were so successful and other homo species weren't is our ability to learn from stories. If you think about it, like being able to hunt cooperatively is kind of like a story, like, you know, go down to that river and go across the river and then I'll meet you over on the hillside and we'll like combine forces there or whatever, right? It's a plot that you have to learn. And so I think human children are just wired to learn through stories. And again, it's like what we were just talking about. It's indirect. So it's not accusatory when you're teaching through a story. At first, I have to tell you that I really thought these stories were too scary for (laughs) three-year-old Rosie. Many, many cultures around the world have water monsters. So instead of yelling at the child or helicoptering over them to prevent them from going in the Arctic Ocean or any sort of water source... Parents will tell the child a story about a monster that lives in there in the Arctic. In some parts of the Arctic, it's Kalupluluk. And if you go too close to the water, the monster will pick you up, put you in their parka, like a baby carrier, and take you down to the bottom of the sea. And you're gone. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought it was really... There's another one about the Northern Lights where, like, if you don't wear your hat, you know, you'll get frostbite or... The northern lights will come and chop your head off and use your head as a soccer ball. So they're not wussy stories. But at first, I was like, "Oh, this is too scary." But then I tried it one once with Rosie because I was trying to get her to close the refrigerator door, and I was getting ready to, you know, get in an argument with her, and I was nagging her, and I and I and then I thought of this, and I said, "Rosie, there's a monster in there, and if he warms up, he's going to come and get you." I kind of said it with a little bit of a wink in my eye, you know, and then I said, there he is. And I like pointed and she's like slammed the (laughs) she slammed the refrigerator door and turned around and looked at me and said, Mama, tell me more about that monster. (laughs) (laughs) It was an incredible moment. And then I just started using them everywhere, like everywhere. I was like nagging her and we would get in arguments. I would turn it into a story. And she loves them. I mean, just loves them. And they've like changed our lives in so many ways. She's five now, so she's starting to know that they're kind of not real, but Mm -hmm. she still loves them.
0: Well, and it makes me think about the stories that we tell here in America and across Western culture that doesn't necessarily have to do with dissuading certain actions or behaviors, but it's more about feeding into this commercialistic beast that we've created over time we tell the Santa Claus fabrication or the Easter Bunny fabrication versus telling stories that may lead to actual better behavior than threatening coal and stockings come Christmas time.
1: You know that is such an astute observation. <laughs> I, had, I had not thought of that but you're so right, right The stories that we are telling are kind of teaching children commercial consumerism.
0: Yeah. Section four is titled Hidzabe Health. What is the gift economy that the Hidzabe practice and how does it impact their parenting?
1: Yeah. So this idea comes from an incredible book called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's really a remarkable book, but she is a Native American and she talks about the difference between the gifting economy, and then the market economy. So, you know, we live in what we think of as the market, or what is the market economy. So if you need some fruit, let's say, I think she uses strawberries at the market, you know, you go and you give the vendor your money and you take the strawberries and then that's it, right? Like you never see that vendor again. The relationship is done, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's transactional. Whereas the gifting economy, which is many hunter-gatherer communities and indigenous communities in the world live by, is that when you give somebody something so if i see you next time or you know and i give you something expecting nothing in return i've set up a relationship with you and when that relationship comes some responsibility so that if you can help me in the future in some way you would or the next time you see me you give me something back and then what do you know now it's my turn right and so there's this kind of endless reciprocal relationship that's set up and so she talks about how relationships come with a bundle of responsibilities. So I give you something, and then it comes with a bundle of responsibilities to give give back to me and help take care of me. And the Hadzabe do this with the land, right? So the land gives them the animals they hunt, the baobab trees, the seeds, the fruit, the tubers, and, and then in return, the Hadzabe give back to the land. They take care of the land. They don't take too much they don't hurt the land, you know. So it's this reciprocal relationship. And I've started to realize that it's also the way they treat each other, including their children. So they give their children love and food and shelter, just like all parents in the world. But they've set up a relationship. And so what do they expect back? A bundle of responsibility, right? So the child, they teach the child, To help the parents they teach the child to help their siblings to help their neighbors and it's really wonderful because then you instead of just having these relationships that are just one way and one and done right you give this and then we never see each other again you set up these very deep long-term relationships that respect each other so you respect the autonomy you expect the child's right to make their own decisions their right to do what they choose to do but They're always responsible back to the parents by helping, by being kind and sharing.
0: Initially, you marveled at what you thought was the Hidzabe kids' independence, being trusted and allowed to do so much, even at a young age, from throwing tantrums to executing important responsibilities. But you realized that it's not necessarily independence that they possess. What was it then? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's what psychologists call autonomy. So it looks like, like you said, like independence. You know, the children kind of move around the camp and around the homes, making their own decisions. The parents rarely tell them what to do. But if you look really closely, they're always turning back to the group and helping the group. So the little five-year-old that we were with, Bailey, was always taking care of and looking out for the younger kids. And then the older kids were looking after Bailey. And then Bailey was also always looking out for ways to help her family. So we went out and got water from the river once and all of a sudden she breaks off and goes climbing up this cliff. And I didn't know what she was doing, but she came back with this giant bowl of baoba seeds, which is one of their major foods. And she basically had gotten lunch for everyone. <laughs> so, so autonomy is this idea that from moment to moment, you make your own decisions and you're very independent. You take initiative when you need to, but you're always looking back to the group and there's always a bundle of responsibilities back to the group. So Rosie said, everyone can do what they want, but you need to be kind, you need to share and you need to be helpful. And that really kind of sums up, I think, autonomy.
0: The fifth and final section is Western Parenting 2.0. How can 19th century insane asylums help us understand the error of our ways with trying to get kids to sleep in a particular fashion?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this comes from this incredible historian, Benjamin Reese, I think. Yeah, he was studying 19th century insane asylums, and he realized the doctors there were obsessed with the patient's sleep. The patients had to go to sleep at a certain time every night. The room had to be like a certain darkness. They had to wake up at a certain time every day. And there was just this very highly controlled, regulated sleep. And what he realized was that this idea just kind of took over all of Western culture. Huh. That like sleep is this thing that needs to be incredibly tightly regulated, especially with children. That if they don't go to bed at this certain time with a certain routine, that something's wrong or something's wrong with them. But the problem is, is this is incredibly abnormal biologically. People sleep, first of all, it's very personal. How I sleep is going to be very different than what you do. And it moves around depending on activity level, the sunset, the sunrise, the weather. And by forcing children to have this incredibly tightly controlled and regulated sleep, we are creating sleep problems. Number one, we're causing an enormous amount of stress at sleep because we're kind of forcing children to do something that a lot of times they don't want to do or their body is not telling them to do. But also we're not giving children the opportunity to learn their own biological rhythm, to learn what it feels like when they're tired and what to do about it. This is something I think I learned in my 30s. So many kids that I saw while we were traveling, three, four, five, six, put themselves to sleep every night. Mm. The parents did nothing because the parents had already taught the children From being a baby, when your body is tired and you feel this certain way, you go to sleep. They were not on these like incredibly rigid sleep schedules. So I have to tell you that I told Rosie, after I figured this out, like I stopped telling Rosie when to go to sleep from about three and a half, four. She decides for herself, and it has made our lives so much less stressful.
0: When does she typically (laughs) go to bed?
1: So, you know, it really depends if she takes a nap at school. So if she takes a nap at school, which I'm really against, because (laughs) she goes to bed at like 10. Mm. But if she doesn't take a nap, like on the weekend, she'll go to bed at like eight.
0: Interesting. So obviously a big part of parenting in modern society is managing our kids' relationship with screens. And I believe you mentioned in this book that Maya kids have cell phones while Inuit kids watch TV and play video games. So Mm. what is the ancient culture rule on screen time if there is one?
1: You know, I think it's more about access than about regulating, is what my kind of view of it is. So with the Maya kids, they get a cell phone if they can pay for it. So they have to be able to purchase the phone and purchase the plan. So most of them don't get it until they're 15, until Mm -hmm. they can make some money at a job. And so otherwise, the kids really don't have access to phones. Like they will play with their siblings and their parents, but there's very much less access to phones. And it's the same in in the Arctic in the sense that they have TVs, but you know, it's it's a lot less. They don't have iPads. Each person doesn't have their own device. So it's more of a shared experience. And so I've been trying to follow that myself. I'm just trying to have less of it around, and then there's not a need to control access to it. One of the moms, Elizabeth, in the Arctic told me at one point, Rosie and I were arguing over something. It might've been the phone. And she looked at me and she said, we would never let a piece of property cause conflict with our children. Hmm. And this just like kind of blew my mind. I was just like, I let property cause conflict with my child all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, right? Like, is that not what we do? But it really kind of zeroed in on this idea that access to it is a much better way of regulating than taking something away.
0: Okay, last two questions here. Is there something that you observed the ancient cultures or an ancient culture getting something wrong about parenting?
1: So it's a very good question. And I mean, like I say in the book, all cultures have their problems. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I picked these cultures for is that they don't struggle with the things that we struggle with. You know, they don't struggle to raise helpful kids, kids with very good emotional regulation and in, in the Hadzabe, confident self sufficient kids right these are things that western culture now really has a problem with but all cultures have problems other problems and they struggle with things that we don't struggle with you know but to be honest i haven't really focused on them so i can't i can't talk too much about them a lot of media focuses on other cultures problems And I say specifically in the book, I'm trying to focus on the positive things.
0: Totally understood. And finally, this book is obviously and understandably, I might add, critical of Western parenting. I think there are a lot of things that we can do better. But what is something that Western parenting gets right, in your opinion?
1: There's a lot of things. I think, number one, we raise kids that can create iPods, and, you know, this incredible technology. We raise incredibly smart, intelligent children with enormous amounts of motivation and strive. I think that that's the major thing is that, you know, we're great at teaching kids to read and write and do math and, and imagination. You can't create like an iPhone without an incredible imagination. So that's what I'm I'm proud of.
0: <laughs> great well uh, Michaeline, I really love this book I've started to apply some of these things in my home I think a lot of other parents are going to find out about this and do the same thank you so much for writing this excellent resource guide and thank you for the time today
1: oh thank you so much it's been such a pleasure thank you for your thoughtful questions
0: and thanks to you for listening check out booksonpod.com for all of our episodes and to subscribe to this podcast and if you're on Apple Podcasts please do leave a 5 star rating and review helps us grow the show We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.